Hello and welcome everyone to this first episode of Biosphere. Every episode we, a group of Caltech graduate students, invite you to join us in considering the more curious and bewildering aspects of life on Earth. My name is Lev, I am this week's principal host, and I am here with my good friends John, Julian, and Aditi. Since this is our very first episode, let's introduce ourselves by saying a little bit about what we're interested in. I like thinking about what it's like to be a microbe, and that's basically who I am. I'm Aditi. I also like thinking about what it, what it's like to be a microbe, but I like to think about microbes at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, you're defined by more things. Than just I'm defined the- by more things. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, but in the context of biology, bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Not other context. Not other. No. Um, I'm John. Uh, I guess my base interest is in physiology in general, mostly molecular physiology. And uh, I started interested in human cells and how our cells work at a molecular level, and now studying how uh, molecules help other organisms live and how that, their, their cells work. I'm Julian. I'm interested in beetles and ants and how they evolve and live together symbiotically and socially. So our topic this week is new beginnings, and I think that we all have feelings about starting something new. (laughs) What are your guys' hot takes? One to five new Uh, beginnings. John. On starting something new? Yeah. Oh, four. Exciting, always exciting, um, but always a little bit of nervous, so it's not perfect. Four. Julian. (laughs) I think I'm going to have to go with three. I think the apprehension of not knowing what's going on is definitely a hurdle. (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, but it's always fun to uh, meet new people, which often comes along with doing new things. So that's that's a three. <laughs> I'm going with 3.5. Dead center, wow. both of you, for basically the exact same reasons. I It's always cool to start something new. That's like, you know, it's how you grow as a person. But also there's like a total terror in starting fresh. So... Yeah, I'll also give it a 3.5. And uh, I'll add on that for me personally... When I try to do something that's new to me, it's just very hard for me to overcome the inertia and actually do it. Yeah. I yeah. think about it <laughs> and think about it and think about it, and then it takes so much longer to actually do it. <laughs> In retrospect, it should. Like this podcast for all of us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. How many months in the making now? Nine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's worth it, though. Yeah, all right. How many so, babies were born? <laughs> <laughs> all right, speaking of babies being born, <laughs> the topic this week is about birth, but not of animals, of bacteria. And so we might commonly think, well, bacteria, they reproduce by dividing. Uh, that's something that we very commonly say. But there are actually exceptions to this, and the exception that I want to talk about this week is uh, viviparous birth, the birth of live young in bacteria. This is strange, right? Yeah. Now, yes. wait, first, let's clarify, this is asexual reproduction, right? Asexual reproduction, giving birth to live young as a bacterial cell. Okay. So how do bacteria normally reproduce? Normally, they just basically pinch in two. Sometimes uh, they can bud, There's a little cell that kind of grows out of a mother's cell and then pinches off. But very commonly with bacteria, the bacteria kind of grows in size and then pinches in half, and now you have two bacteria. And 
in this way, it can be very difficult to determine the mother from the daughter cell. But in the case of some bacteria, like Epilopiscium fischelsonii, or fischelsoni, fischelsoni. Piscium? Epilopiscium. I don't know. <laughs> it's like Pisces. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, you know Latin, right? Well, Should it be Piscium or Piscium? I'd have to look at it. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to commit now. <laughs> we'll issue a correction yeah, next episode. See, there's so many different ways of pronouncing Latin if you're in yeah. the Middle Ages versus classical Latin, so, or okay. German-sounding Latin. So. All right, I will go for the more <laughs> lyrical pronunciation of Epilopiscium fischelsonii. <laughs> Uh, it just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. So these bacteria, they live in the guts of surgeon fish. Surgeon fish are a group of tropical fish, the best known representative of which is Dory the fish, which is a regal tang. Yeah. Uh, and these bacteria are remarkable, not only for giving viviparous birth, but also for their size. They were discovered in the middle of the 20th century, but were recognized as bacteria only in the 90s when people looked at their ribosomal RNA sequence, the signature that identifies different organisms and realized that they're actually bacteria. That's because they're so big. They're actually visible by eye. Mm. They're about 600 microns long. I mean, it's variable, but they get up to 600 microns, so that's... That's six... Three-fifths of a millimeter. Yeah. <laughs> so you, yeah, so yeah. you could see it on a ruler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they do is uh, when they divide, they don't just pinch in half. They pinch off little nubs at the end on both sides and then engulf those nubs. And then those little nubs grow and become full-size wow. living cells and then bust out of the mother as fully... No, alive, grown cells. Does that kill the mother cell? Yep. Oh, that's rough. It's like so a it's spider. like a marsupial kind of, right? Except yeah. that the kangaroo baby, like, <laughs> bursts out of the mother. It's, it's like very, alien style. Yeah. It's two, yeah. two kangaroo babies. It's very alien. Yeah. <laughs> so this is just remarkable. When we think about the way bacteria grow, this idea that a bacterium is nurturing its young, basically. Yeah. And letting them grow up. Do we know exactly why it's necessary for them to do that, or why it's evolved to, to become that way? So, it is necessary for them in the sense that nobody's observed them dividing in any other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just the way that they reproduce. And uh, part of it might be because the cell is so big, it has to you know, overcome all sorts of difficulties of trans- transporting metabolites and stuff. Like, it can't rely on diffusion. And so it has enormous number of copies of its chromosome that are segregated around it and producing all the components that it needs to locally. Hmm. Uh, and so I think that's why it's possible for it to do this. It can basically package some chromosomes into these little nubs that it pitches off at the ends. But evolutionarily, it's actually related to other bacteria that sporulate. So sporulation is this process where, again, the cell divides asymmetrically. It doesn't pinch pinch in the middle, but uh, towards the edge of the cell, engulfs that new little daughter cell, and uh, really packs it, dehydrates it, makes it as robust as possible, And then if the mother cell dies, the spore that it formed can survive dehydration, radiation, all sorts of things. 
and eventually kind of revitalize and, and grow up again. Uh, so Aploplyceum is related to these organisms. It's probably an adaptation of sporulation. Are these, do you know if these um, baby cells, for lack of a better term, that are they also robust in any way? Like spores, I mean, the point of spores is that they can withstand some pretty extreme conditions and the bacteria can still come back, right? But this doesn't seem to be the same thing that way. Like it's not necessarily making them more robust, is it? I don't think it is. The okay. reason why these cells can be so big, so much bigger than we normally think about bacteria, like a thousand times bigger in terms of volume, uh, is that they live in a very rich environment. They're inside the you know, digestive tract of these fish, there's plenty of food. They don't have to really work very hard to get everything they need. And so uh, I think that's why they don't need to sporulate. They don't need to be super careful or su super robust. But for whatever reason, the mother cell cares for the daughters in this way. But there are other examples of big cells that don't divide in that way, right? Yeah. Yes. So it's not like it's not like we could, well, it wouldn't be obvious to hypothesize that the reason why they're dividing this way is just because of their weird size. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that it's a combination of their evolutionary history being related to these spore-forming yeah. bacteria and their size and their environment. Mm -hmm. um, but their environment's a good one. You said yes. it's rich. Yes. So there's no reason either to suspect that you know, that the mother cell is trying to protect its babies until they've reached a certain level of development. That, I think that's true. I don't think we know anything about it, but the way that I'm imagining it is, again, the cells are so big mm -hmm. that uh, they have trouble getting all of their nutrients and all their components to where they need to be. Mm. And so if the mother is already organized and mm -hmm. has, you know, the, the spatial organization, of its genome, of its proteins, of its metabolites, then it can kind of guarantee that the daughter cells will have everything they need given their size mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and give them the time to organize as they grow. But that's total speculation on my part. Are the daughter cells smaller like the spores, or do they grow yeah. to a similar size to the, the mother cell before they basic, it bursts? Yes, yeah, so they grow until they're basically so big that the mother cell can't contain them anymore. Mm -hmm. They start off as really teeny. So it's, you know, if you imagine the cell as a, you know, like a baguette, right? It's really long and not, not so thick. It's going to pinch off just the, the heel of the baguette yeah. uh, and engulf it. And then those heels of the baguette will grow inside the baguette and give you two new baguettes. <laughs> <laughs> but then after they burst from the mother, they continue to grow then as well? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. They grow a little yeah. bit more. I wish baguettes divided that way, too. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the dream. The lowest on the fishes, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's getting closer to noon for everybody listening, so in case you're wondering where the are coming from. But in terms of uh, an advantage for it, in terms of being able to reproduce more, it seems mm -hmm. like if you have a really big cell, then it would slow down how fast you can reproduce, mm -hmm. um, which potentially wouldn't be advantageous in an evolutionary sense. Um, what do you think in terms of their, their environment for, you know, speed of reproduction versus making fewer but bigger daughter cells and how that might, you know, affect reproductive success for these things? That's a very good question. Yeah. It feels to me like they're saying, okay, I'm going to take care of my young because it takes me so much longer to reproduce. 
I'm going to take care of the young that I have and shelter them. Mm-hmm. And they're basically doing what we do, right? Is is that, that what sounds, we were trying to bring up? It like, sounds like, like, yeah, it okay. sounds like parental care almost in yeah, some sense yeah. in, in the microbial world. Mm. Yeah, it would yeah, be very interesting to look into that. I don't know the relative rates of division of different microbes in the mm-hmm. surgeon fish gut, mm-hmm. so it's hard to say how they... Uh, how they compare, but one of the things that I saw in reading about this is that the physiology and the activity of these bacteria actually depends on the day-night cycle and the activity of the fish, where when the fish is active and eating and everything, the bacterium is active and growing and dividing. Then at night, when the fish is kind of not really doing anything, the bacteria also are kind of dormant. Um, And so uh, people think that this is actually really a mutualistic association where these bacteria are adjusting the pH of the gut, the acidity of the gut to help the fish digest their food, mm-hmm. like all, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't been able to actually grow these bacteria in the lab in isolation, so it's very difficult to study the details. Mm-hmm. Is it known how these bacteria are transmitted to future generations of fish? How does it get between, you know, because if it's really important mm-hmm. in the gut, yeah. you'd, the fish would want to transfer it to their offspring, I don't know. right? No idea. Yeah, have they ever been found in the environment the fish is in outside of the fish I, gut? I don't think so. Mm. That's a very good That's question. That's wild. I don't, yeah. Because I imagine, you know, the fish just lay eggs somewhere, right? Yeah. Those yeah. eggs are born germ free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the mu- They must unless pass it on, not, right? right? Yeah. yeah, like unless this surgeon fish is in some way like. Maybe these bugs, know. these bacteria, also live on the algae that the fish eat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could be. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could also definitely see the fish putting microbiome onto the. Yeah, maybe in the, the mucus yeah. of the yeah. of the yeah. eggs. Mm-hmm. Because the too, eggs, do fish lay eggs through the cloaca? What's that? I don't know. Like I don't the know combined the combined anus and urethra oh. that. that oh. Because I they, I, have no idea. I know that you know in fish you poop and pee and mate through the same orifice. Then I'm going to guess that you Probably lay eggs yeah. through the same orifice. In which yeah. case, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> what a beautiful visual. Hey, it can be useful, right? <laughs> um, Great! Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that there's a lot that we don't know just because, like like you mentioned, as far as I am aware, we don't know how they're transmitted from generation to generation. We can't grow them in the labs. So we don't really know whether they would divide in a different way given a different condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can just see this really striking behavior that to me was so surprising. Mm-hmm. Is this the only known example of, of uh, viviparous birth in bacteria? Not quite. So uh, there are other examples. Uh, I mean, first of all, this genus of bacteria, the Epilopiscium genus, has multiple species, mm. it seems, that I think multiple of which do it, if not all. There are other examples of uh, cells, of bacterial cells that kind of... Uh, I was reading about them. I don't remember their name, though. These cells, they grow, and then they divide 
uh, and make little tiny cells, like a lot of really, really oh. tiny cells inside of it. Mm -hmm. And then the yeah. big cell kind of bursts and a lot of teeny tiny cells oh, come out. I know what you're talking about and I can't remember what it's called either. Yeah, there's an al algal, there's an uh, algal the thing that thing does that, 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 but that's, yeah. a, that's a eukaryote. Yeah. But it's also unique for kind of unicellular eukaryotes. I've actually witnessed that before. Oh, no uh, way. Under a microscope, yeah. You're so lucky. Yeah, I was. I didn't know what I was looking at, and yeah. I did an exhaustive search and yeah. found out what it was when I after I had seen it. Wait, so but what did it, it was, look like? It looked like exactly what you described. I mean, it was a it was a ball. It was a single ball. And uh -huh. then I couldn't tell, based on the microscope lighting conditions, that yeah. it was full of other cells. But uh -huh. at some point while I was looking at it, it burst. And there was just a stream that came that out of wild. other wow. tiny particles. And yeah, and I found out it was this algae. But, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's so awesome. <laughs> You're so lucky. I, I felt very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it is an interesting question. Like, how many people have seen that in the world? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but that's one of the things that's so wonderful about doing, like, doing an observational science mm -hmm. uh, or participating in. Do you do science or participate in science? I don't know what the right word is. But uh, ha the person. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, having this opportunity to see something in the world that that's just so striking. Yeah. I mean, like with these bacteria, people were studying the surgeon fish, you know, kind of like looking at, oh, what, what does it have in its guts? Like, what, what is it poop? And then saw something so remarkable, these huge cells. No questions are off limits. Mm -hmm. No questions are off limits. You just have to kind of figure out how to ask them and how yeah. to answer them uh, and that can be very hard like people have tried to culture these cells in the lab and no one's figured out how to do it because you'd have to somehow recreate the conditions of the fish gut I guess this day night cycle that yeah. the guts yeah. experience and the maybe pH cycle and mm -hmm. and I don't know what other microbes are in there right that yeah. you would also probably need yeah Maybe need? Well, we can go to the tropics. <laughs> catch some search and fish. <laughs> uh, maybe we could just go to an aquarium. I don't know. Yeah. Ask yeah. them for some fish poop. It would be really interesting to see if they actually had the same mic microbiome. Yeah, yeah. living in the, in the aquarium. aquarium yeah. I, yeah. I don't want to miss out on the fishing trip, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> does, the, does your lab at DT ever go to the tropics? To Costa Rica, Costa Rica. Right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sign us up. <laughs> so, Lev, what ha so y are you going to tell us a little bit about uh, your new beginnings in, in a lab setting? Yes. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Cool. Uh, so, as I was thinking about this episode and what I wanted to talk about, I had this very vivid recollection of... Uh, for the first time getting accepted into a lab. Uh, and this was back when I was at Chicago, uh, in Chicago, at the University of Chicago. Um, and uh, it was winter, it, it was the middle of February, and uh, the dorm that I was living in was mostly single rooms, like these really, really small rooms with thin walls. So it was, you know, always cold in the mornings. And I got up early, like 6.30 in the morning to work on my math homework. I was you know, like cold and sniffly and miserable. <laughs> and, and I checked my email and 
there was this email from someone who I reached out to like two months before uh, about <laughs> whether I could try working in their lab. And I was just so happy. Like, I, it, it was the, this, when I thought about what memory I would have for my expecto Patronus charm, <laughs> like, the, this was one of them. Like, I, I literally jumped out of my seat, like, did, like, a fist pump. Like, I was, I was just so thrilled. And, you know, it was, I guess it wasn't even the real beginning to working in a lab, but just, like, this very first step or something that, I so deeply wanted. I was just so happy. Why did you, what was it about this position that made you so deeply wanted? I just, I had never worked in a lab before. I, not in high school, not, uh, you know, outside of class that, uh, that I was taking at uh, the University of Chicago and a little bit of, you know, like running a gel in AP biology and stuff. I, you know, I never did any research. Uh, myself and I think it was just I I I don't want to use the word innate because you know it was <laughs> long after I was born but yeah. but I felt a compulsion like this is what I wanted to do mm. and you know I realized that it was hard to get a lab position and I didn't know anything like the, this person was a stranger to me mm-hmm. It was totally something so new. I was going to ask you, Lev, um, do you know if before even being accepted into a lab for the first time, if you felt that science was something you were certainly going to do as a career? I was quite sure. So for a long time, I wanted to do a combined MD-PhD track. And I was like, I'm going to be a doctor, and I'm going to be a researcher. I'm going to do all the I'm things. Be two doctors. <laughs> yeah, a double doctor. Um, and I think that, you know, going into college, I was really driven by ambition in large degree. Uh, just that I want to do the most difficult thing, and I want to be the best at it, and all of that. And that was true for you know, even a couple years into working in the lab that I ended up working at. Uh, And I think that it was one of the best things that has happened to me that my advisor in that lab gradually brought me to love the science and the research itself for its own sake. And, you know, through volunteering at a hospital and doing some things, I came to realize that, no, I don't actually want to be a doctor. I want to, I want to pursue science mm-hmm. in a very fundamental way mm-hmm. and that I really love it for its own sake. And maybe, I mean, probably that was in me all along, maybe in that, you know, how happy this email made me is uh, a reflection of that. But... I think it took me quite a long time to get on the kind of the path where I am now. Mm. This might be a sidebar, but how did you uh, reach out to people to try to get into a lab? Because I remember when I was a freshman in undergrad, I was really sort of frightened. I didn't know what to do. I was like, how do I get in a lab? I want to yeah. be in a lab. I've never done research before. I want to do research, but I don't know how to get in a lab. <laughs> so Yeah, what, what I did, I, I felt very similarly. and. I think over time I've become less shy, just mm-hmm. like over the years, yeah. especially in the past several 
But back then I was very shy and what I did, uh, which was hard for me, was after my first quarter at UChicago, I went to my, one of my biology professors. The class was co-taught by two. And there was one of them whom I felt just slightly closer to. And mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to find a lab position over the summer in Colorado, actually, to be closer to home. And so I asked that professor whether he had any recommendations for people whom I could reach out to there. And then it was this huge stroke of luck that the person who then invited me to come to his lab in Colorado also reached out to a collaborator at UChicago and basically helped me set up the lab that I worked at at UChicago uh, on a collaborative project. So it was very, very lucky. Um, I think it was just kind of the kindness and generosity of, of the people who I ended up talking to. You find that a lot in the scientific community, though. I mean, I feel like sometimes um, people have this shyness and are scared because they look up towards professors and they're like, oh my gosh, you're an intimidating, very smart and intelligent person and I don't want to come across as like wasting your time or anything like that. But in reality, I think most people have gone through this experience that you just described, including those professors, and, uh, and they're going to be very receptive if you come to them as a uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed student. Yeah. What was your experience like, Julian? I emailed maybe four professors at my institution. Um, I had been, I had actually, but before this, I went and talked to a couple of profs from my bio classes about, about this, like, how do you get in the lab? And they basically said, email professors, don't ask them to be in their lab right away. Ask if you can meet with them um, and ask, you know, talk about their work. Um, so I reached out to a few people. Um, some one person I think didn't never got back to me because professors are sometimes bad with email. The other three were happy to set up meetings, um, and we just chatted. Um, and I just started volunteering in a beetle lab, um, which was ended up being a lot of fun. Um, I wasn't sort of interested in anything in particular at the time. I just wanted I just wanted to start somewhere. Um, so since I was willing to volunteer. Um, my time that was perfectly acceptable, you know, yeah. fine. Um, they were willing, willing to uh, mentor me some. But then after that, I also had a super lucky thing for my first summer position, which was after my freshman year. Um, I reached out to, well, this is a bit of an inside thing, I guess I re- reached out to a family friend who worked at Sandia National Labs, which is located in my hometown, um, and he put me in contact with someone in the biology division. And they have interns there, but not very many positions. Apparently, the same day that I had reached out, uh, the previous year's intern who was going to return had missed the GPA cutoff for the lab by 0.01. That is horrible. And so was ineligible to intern. (laughs) And so there was a position available exactly when I had... Wow. got put in contact with someone. I, I'm very and happy so, for you. I know. I, really I, I still feel bad about student. this a little bit. But at the same time, I got the position. And then I mean, I it wasn't like you denied the them the position. Several so, summers. You know. um, so I was also lucky, I guess. I did have a connection there. Whereas yeah. at U- the universe, at Arizona State, I did not. So can go both ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What about you, Aditi? Um, I ended up... Re- and in a lab in undergrad through a program 
basically it was the under undergrad research program at school and you could apply you could search through like if anybody was interested in having an undergrad work they could put up a quick description of their lab or they could just not and it would literally just say the faculty member's name depending on how busy they were but if you um scrolled through and you know decided to apply for specific labs you could you could pick maybe i think up to three that you could send applications to apply to those labs, explain why you were interested, explain why you were qualified, the whole deal. And then if things went well, you'd be called in to interview with a postdoc or with the professor themselves. And then if things went well there, you would get a position. So my first position was working in a lab that was trying to look at spider populations in Northern California grasslands. So I spent an awful lot of time despite like a mortal fear of spiders, <laughs> um, trying to, they were all dead. So like, that's how this worked out. <laughs> like the ones that I was looking at had been trapped in, in some, in a grassland and then preserved in ethanol. So they were dead. And so like, it was massive, right? Like I'm looking at a, cor- a spider that's like just a little bit longer than a quarter, like a bigger than a quarter, like leg to leg. So it was not small. And so I was like, had this irrational fear that it was going to come to life again. I don't even know. <laughs> Point is, that was my first position. It was um, super illuminating, I think, because one, I actually really enjoyed it. Like it was, there's something very satisfying about flipping through like a manual and finding the spider that you see under the scope and being like, yeah, I figured out which one this is. Mm-hmm. But it's also taught me, I think, that there are parts of science that are just tedious work, mm-hmm. but the payoff is worth it. Mm-hmm. So that was my first research position. It was do you in that time. lab? Do you eventually get to um, you get promoted to the point where you go out into the field? I to did catch get to go spiders? out into the field a couple uh, once. And did actually. you catch live spiders? We did not catch them. We were what the pro the, when I went out. The reason we had to go out is because we. The, the student, the grad student who was doing this project had set up, like, specific plot areas where she was like, I'm looking in this, like, 10 by 10 area. And the, the walls that sort of contained that, that field site had fallen over, basically. Mm-hmm. So I was out there just, just reshoring up plots. Mm-hmm. So it was like, it was basically just, you know, physical, manual labor, but it was, it was really fun. Is the idea that spiders can climb over walls? They totally can. But it was just <laughs> But I mean, if a spider isn't going to travel, if it's like this big, it's I not going to like travel tons okay. and tons, right? Like, so the idea is that if it's pretty happy in this area and it set up its web, mm-hmm. it just kind of keeps it there. And you I keep see. out like, not that rodents can't dig or climb over walls, right. but like it, it gives you a little bit more, I don't know, just a little bit more control over I the see. space. Mm-hmm. Mm. Or at least, at the very least, it marks your sampling site. So you can be like, this is where I picked up samples last time. Let me pick them up here again. Mm-hmm. So, Do you feel like you got less afraid of spiders through this? Yeah, actually. Hmm. I think the first thing that ever actually made me respect spiders a little bit more was reading Charlotte's Web as a kid. Mm-hmm. Okay. But like, that just meant I was like, get rid of it and take it outside instead of kill it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this made me, a l- it did actually help a little bit. Hmm. Yeah. So... What was your experience like, John? Um, a lot of a lot of luck as well. Um, so I started college in a program, um, like a, a select science program that it was like an integrated science program. So we came in and and we would basically take one class where uh, that had five professors each in a different discipline, and they would rotate each each 
day of the class who was teaching, and we would have these really interdisciplinary projects to do. Like, for example, we had one thing where uh, we had to program a simulation of how antibiotic resistance would spread throughout a hospital. Mm-hmm. And, in, you know, implicit in that, you have to understand the biology of how antibiotic resistance spreads, the dynamics of how it spreads, um, which is like a physics math type thing. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, the, the actual programming itself, which is a computer science thing. So that was like a really cool class. And one of the things that came with it um, were funds to do a, a summer research project. Mm-hmm. And uh, traditionally, students paired up with one of the professors from the class to do, to mm-hmm. do their, their project. And uh, there was one professor, there were, there were, I knew I wanted to do biology and biochemistry in particular, and there were two biology professors, one that was studying sponges and another one that was an immunologist studying the human immune system. And at the time, I thought I was going to be doing medical stuff, so I went with the immunologist, which is, I mean, I'm very happy with my choice. She was wonderful, but I would definitely discourage people from choosing a lab based on the, the science that they do, I would I would choose a lab based on how much you like the mentor, the, mm-hmm. the person who runs the lab. Um, I think the work will will follow. You'll find a way yeah. to love the work, Very no true. matter if you love your boss. Um, so so anyway, it worked out great for me. She was great, and um, she was a, a wonderful mentor. But I remember when I first asked her if I could do a summer research thing in her lab, she she sort of brushed off the request and was like. Um, oh, I'll, you know, I have to check. I have to see if I have space for you. I'm, I'm just not totally sure. I'm very excited about the idea of you joining for the summer, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And at the time, because the only other choice was this sponge lab, and I felt like that was just so irrelevant to my interests at the time, I was super nervous about whether or not I was actually going to get into this lab. But in the end, I, you know, she, she came up to me about two or three weeks later and offered me the position, and I was, like, very relieved and very excited and I had a wonderful summer, and I knew after that summer experience that that research was something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It was just a feeling of being in love with the work, being totally lost in the work in a way that I never had been before with any other job. Hey everyone, Lev here. While we are off writing poems in Upgore Fives to recap the episode, I'd like to make some corrections. Number one, I misspoke. The correct term is Patronus Charm. In the lasting debate whether I should be sorted into Gryffindor or Ravenclaw, this is a point to Gryffindor. Number two, fish in the Teleost group, like Dory the Regal Tang, do not have cloacae. That honor is reserved for sharks, rays, and most lobe-finned fishes. As an aside, you and I are also lobe-finned fishes, but most mammals have lost their koiki in evolutionary time. And now, please enjoy our recap. So I wrote a poem inspired by this episode. Uh-huh. Birth can lead to many things, to some wonderful indeed, to others it ending brings. For some bacteria that are very long across, it need not be deliria to say that birth leads to loss, carrying for their daughter's cells in the guts of surgeon fish. Epilopiceum's fate spells a sudden burst, perhaps a squish. <laughs> but a beginning need not be a curse of termination. For scientists, for you and me, our start was jubilation. 
So let us come in our new venture and podcast as good chums a call to great adventure. <laughs> nice. Mine was not that good. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a five-line limerick. Oh, me okay. too. Yes. <laughs> me too. Okay. I love limericks. <laughs> Your kids are not always calm. From diapers to going to prom, they might have a fit or find something to hit, but at least they don't burst out of mom. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. All right, I have a similar limit. <laughs> mine's crappier than yours. <laughs> there was a fish named Surgeon that held a mother with children. She grew them up and loved so much that she burst with joy before them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I did a little upgoer uh, about the science topic for today. Okay. A strange single-celled living thing rests in the stomach of some water animals. Fish. <laughs> She's not allowed, but... The mother gives birth to babies. This goes against the usual way that single-celled living things make babies. They usually break in two, leaving the mother and the daughter. In this strange case, two small babies grow on the inside of the mother and come out when they are ready to go into the world. The mother dies when the babies break out, but she leaves her daughters happy and ready to have their own babies. Even in very simple living things, there are many interesting ways that baby-making happens. Wow, that was so good. Nice. We should keep a record of all of our Upgoer 5 slash poems for every episode. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, I have been Lev. <laughs> I continue to be a deep <laughs> <laughs> This is John signing out. <laughs> Julianne here. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot, guys. Hey, it's Lev again. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at biospherepodcast at gmail.com. On social media, I am our only current representative. You can tweet at me at lmt underscore spoon. If you are enjoying what you are hearing, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, leave a review, and share this episode with your friends. You can find a convenient text editor for your own Upgoer Fives at splasho.com slash Upgoer Five. That's with a digit five. Send us your own recaps to this episode. We would really love to read them. Huge thanks to Caltech Letters for hosting us. Find more great things at caltechletters.org. And finally, if you find yourself looking deep into a pond and see something weird, do let us know. We might just talk about it.